Wonderful. I want you to turn to two places this morning, Proverbs chapter 26. And after you locate that, turn to Philippians chapter 2 and look at a few places there in the Bible, Proverbs 26 and Philippians 2. I have some pictures to show you. Uh, I want to show you the. in the morning started words. Marriages are burned down. Churches are burned down. Friendships are burned down by wise words and ungodly words. As you read through the Bible, the Bible gives different metaphors and comparisons to our words, and the Bible often compares our words to fire, and it compares our tongue to a torch that lights the fire. Uh, we'll look into Philippians in a moment, but uh, I think you have your Bible there to Proverbs 26. If you want to look there, I want you to look at that verse with me. Proverbs 26 and verse 20. Proverbs 26, 20. If you don't have this verse marked, you might want to. And the Bible there says, where no wood is, there's no presence of wood, the fire goes out because there's no capacity to feed the fire. There's no wood. So, here's the analogy, where there is no tale-bearer. The word tale means a story, the bearer of a story, someone communicating a story. Strife ceases. There's no strife. There's no division. And he continues, as coals are to burning coals, so you have, like when you're having, uh, you're cooking on your grill, if you're using 
uh, coals. You, you get some coals heated up first, and then you put other coals on them. As coals are to burning coals and wood to fire. So, here's the analogy, is a contentious man to kindle. Notice the word kindle, as kindling wood is on a fire, to initiate the fire. So, is a contentious man. You know, there are people that not only speak contentious words, they're just contentious in and of themselves. A contentious man to kindle strife. I heard someone say many years ago, I never forgot this, the Bible said in Jude in verse 3 that we're to contend for the faith. And he made this observation, you can, you can contend for the faith and not be contentious. Now you may say, well, no, that's impossible, but I know what he meant by it. You, you can contend for the faith and not be a contentious man. So is a contentious man to kindle, to initiate, to start, to inflame strife. The words of a talebearer are as wounds. This is the effect. And these wounds go down into the innermost parts of the belly. The belly means the innermost parts of a person. They, they hurt a person. They wound you, not physically, but they go down to the innermost parts of a person. They not only offend the person that the story is about, but to whom the person is told. Notice in verse 23, and this is interesting. Remember the fire, the flame, the coals, burning lips. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the wise man here says, burning lips and a wicked heart, the two go together. You find a man with a wicked heart, he has burning lips. He's causing fires. Or like potsherd, this is a shard of pottery. It's worthless. This man is, or woman, is worthless, but they're covered with silver dross. The dross is put in, um, in, in a flame to, to reduce, get all of the dross from the silver. And so they take that dross and, and cover the, the shard of pottery with it to get an, an image that it's not. But it, it's wicked. A man has a wicked heart no matter how much religion he has externally. And he or she, they have, they have burning lips. You know, just because it's true doesn't mean you have to say it. You ever known someone that said, well, I, I just tell the truth. Well, one day the truth's going to be about you. Someone said, you know, there are some ground rules for speech. Is it true? Is it kind? And then the next one, is it necessary? Sometimes things aren't necessary. Do you really need to know that? Do you really need to spread that? Is it necessary? Then this verse in James chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, even as a tongue is a little member, and this is the focus, a little member of your body, and boasts great things about your life and who you are, what you're going to do. Behold, how great a matter of little fire kindleth, just like your tongue is small. And here's the illustration. A little fire kindles great destruction. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity, a world, a world, all kinds of sin. So is the tongue among our members, among our body, that our tongue defiles the whole body 
In the verse, two verses of James 3 teaches, and it sets on fire the course of nature, as it were. If it could, it would set on fire all of nature, set on forest fires, buildings, destructive. And here, here, here it is. Here's the source of our tongues being on fire. Our tongue is set on fire of hell. It's satanic. Then you're still in Proverbs. Move over to Proverbs chapter 16, just a few chapters back, and look at verse 27. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 27. The Bible there says, An ungodly man diggeth up evil. This is a characteristic of an ungodly person. They dig up evil. They research evil. They're looking for it. They dig and they dig and they dig and they dig. They're they're looking for it. An ungodly man diggeth up evil. Look at this. And in his lips there is as a burning fire. Now, I showed you those pictures. And those are metaphors, but that's what happens. You burn down lives. You burn down friendships. You burn down churches. You burn down homes. Some of you burn down the confidence of your wife. You burn down the confidence of your husband by what you say. You destroy the future of your children by what you say. You destroy your friends by your sarcasm. And in his lips there is as a burning fire. Proverbs chapter 18, a page over in verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. A judge, a jury, authorities have power in their tongue of death and life. And so do you. You you can destroy or you can give life. I prayed in our life group before we came over here that God will give us ears to hear, but that also we will be a blessing and pray for one another and serve one another, encourage one another. Not only hear the Word of God, but we will fulfill our responsibilities as brothers and sisters to give life with the power of our tongue, not to burn. I didn't pray that. And they that love it, that is, they love the authority, the the enablement, the power of the tongue, shall eat the fruit thereof, because there will be fruit. And one day you're going to have to live with what you cause with your kids and your marriage. Our church. So what is the key to a a marriage that's characterized by solidarity and unity and joy? And what are the components of relationships that are close? And they're wholesome. And again, they're joyful. And and how, how are these relationships maintained? Well, unity is a fruit. You don't find unity. Unity finds you. We've been talking about this and... The first sections of Philippians, we'll look there in just a moment. But it's, listen, listen carefully what I'm saying here. The fruit of unity is not just enjoyed by the people that are in the relationship. But when you enjoy unity, it has a multi-generational impact. When you become a, a peacemaker and you you learn how to be at peace because you cannot make peace until you're at peace with God and you're at peace with others if if you're not at peace with God you don't have the peace of God and you don't know how to be a peacemaker 
then, then you're not going to, to have this type of impact in your environment, wherever you go. And the things that you touch, you're going to have a tendency to, to torch and to burn. And I'll tell you what's sad is many people that are like, they don't even know until it's too late. Well, I, I didn't know I did that. Well, you need to get a clue quick because there's a destruction. And the Bible says in James chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, the wisdom that is above, because he contrasts that earlier in verse 13, I believe, he talks about the wisdom that is beneath. That's satanic wisdom. But this is God's wisdom. Notice how it's characterized. And this is what you and I can have as Christians. The wisdom that is above is first pure, then it's peaceable. You see that? Peaceable. It's not argumentative. It doesn't mean it's not concerned with truth. You'll see that in a moment, but it's peaceable. It's not proud of truth. Truth humbles a person. When you engage with truth, you see how far you are from it. It doesn't make you arrogant. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's easy to be entreated. What does that mean? It, ma- it makes you you're approachable. Full of mercy and, and good fruits. Notice the qualifier there. You see, you can have bad fruit. But the wisdom that is from above, when God works in your life, you have good fruits. When you come into your environment, when your grandchildren are over, when your children are over, when your friends are over, you manifest good fruits without partiality. When you're in a restaurant with someone, the way you treat the waiter and the waitress, when you're bringing something back to the the customer service people, the way you treat these people. It's not what, what they can do for you, it's what you can do for them. And the Bible says without hypocrisy. And, and here it comes back to fruits again, and he says, and the fruit of righteousness, now watch this, is sown in peace of them that make peace. And the Bible here says when you are a peacemaker, that you sow peace around people that you are with. Now, all fruit, you know this, has seeds in it that have the potential to produce more fruit. But what's interesting in this verse, in verse 18, he doesn't say that, that you sow the seeds, but you sow the fruit. And this is the fruit of God in your life, the fruit of peace. And when you are a peacemaker, when you are at peace with yourself, you're at peace with God, you have the peace of God. Here's what happens. Watch this. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. As you share this fruit with others, they are fed and they, listen, they learn how to share it with other people. That's why I said you don't just bless them and they're not just fed with it. They learn, your kids learn, your employees learn. The church members, if it's a pastor, if it's a life group leader, when people are around you, they learn to lead, they learn to respond in peace. Warren Wiersbe, one of my favorite uh, writers and Bible teachers, has had as much impact on my life as, as anyone through the years. He, he commented on this verse in James 3. Here's what he said, what we are is what we live And what we live is what we sow. What we live is what we sow. What we sow determines what we reap. 
If we live in God's wisdom, we sow righteousness and peace, and we reap God's blessing. I like that. We reap God's blessing. But it's not just for yourself. It's for others. And you have an impact in this church. You have an impact in your family. You have an impact in your business. And and for the long term, the longer you're in there. But even, even that there's something that the Holy Spirit of God does with a person, with a man, a woman, a teenager. When they're in an environment and they have what the Bible here says, the wisdom that is from, from above, that's peaceable, it's pure, it's easy to be entreated. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 6, it says, These six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination. An abomination means it's a special sin that God has a special hatred for. And in Proverbs, the last sin there is Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 19. A false witness that speaketh lies, and here it is, and he that sows discord, and here you get the sowing again, the sowing and the reaping. He that sows discord among brethren. And you can go back to the fire, the burning lips, the digging of evil. Hey, hey, did you hear? Did you hear what Daniel and Leslie did? Did did you hear what Pastor and Paula did? Did you hear about Stephen Naomi? Did you hear about fill in the blank? And you begin to sow doubts. You begin to sow questions. Or sometimes it's not words. Sometimes it's, uh, you know... I, I really like them. They're such a blessing to me, and sometimes it's a shrug of the shoulder or the rolling of an eye, or it's nonverbal. You don't say anything. He that sows discord among brethren, God says, that's an abomination to me. And by the way, you say, preacher, who are you talking about this morning? I'm not talking about anybody. I'm just preaching through the Bible. It's all I'm doing. This is preventive. This brings a harvest of conflict, a harvest of destruction, but it does not bring the fruit of peace. But this is not just for the church. This is for your marriage. You, you can't keep just sowing negativity in your marriage and expect to have a good fruit from it. You can't keep yelling at your kids and expect to have a positive outcome. You, you can't keep competing with your brothers and sisters and keeping score. Well, the last time you got this from mom, you can't keep living like that and have unity. It will not work. To make peace and maintain peace is by the response of your words, which are according to the character of Jesus Christ. If you want to be a peacemaker and maintain that peace, it's by, by the response of of the words that you have by the standard of the Lord Jesus Christ. So unity is, is about relationships, and they're characterized by certain things. We'll look at that in just a moment. But here's what I'm trying to get you to see right now, that this type of person in their environment is like a seed that is planted. And every per- listen carefully, every person in here, whether you're saved or you're lost, When you walk into an environment, you bring something good or bad, and you're sowing seeds. You may be lighting a fire. 
And you're bringing a blessing or you're bringing a curse. Now let's look in Philippians chapter 2. I want to be a help to you. And I've asked God to help me to do that today. Philippians chapter 2. There are four evidences of unity here. Philippians chapter 2 verse 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercies, fulfill you my joy. Paul said that ye be like-minded. Notice these unifiers, these unity synonyms. Like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. This church was unified. They did have a problem with two ladies in chapter 4. Verse 3, he exhorts him, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Because this is where humility starts. It's in your mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So there's four evidences here in verse 1. Consolation, comfort of love, fellowship, and bowels and mercies. The word bowels there means affections. We've already looked at consolation. If you want to affect your environment, you must learn to console. The word console means to soothe a person's pain with your presence and your words. You need to learn to do that. Now, you say, well, I'm kind of neutral. I don't set fires. I'm just, I'm just there. Well, you need to learn to console. Learn to, you need to find when someone is in distress and, and learn to do that. Some people, they, they don't soothe, they agitate with their presence and with their words. You need to learn. Ask people. Ask your wife. Ask your husband. Ask your kids. They'll tell you. you know, do, do I agitate people sometimes with my words? My wife has helped me before. She'll say, you know, uh, sometimes when you preach, you look angry. you got those dark eyebrows up there. You look down at us. And, and, and I started writing at the top of my outline, Smile. After about three minutes, it disappears. My father was like that. Dad didn't have a natural smile. But there was nothing mean about him. Had to work at it. Comfort of love. We talked about that, I think, last week. It talks about a comfort that comes that's motivated by love. It means to bring comfort and support. Because I love you, I want to comfort you. It's motivated by love, so I comfort you, I support you, I show up. I, I, I'm, I'm praying for you. I stay in touch with you, I care for you. Um, a friend of mine, uh, we connected this week, and he uh, wrote me right back, and he said, My, my mom is dying. And I, I didn't know about that. So I found a song that had always helped me, and I sent him a note and sent the song. And the next day, he said, I just now listened to that song. He said, that song really helped me. That's the comfort of love. He lives in another state. I can't be there with him. But I have to do something. I, I have to be there. Price Harris lost his, his pastor that was his mentor a few weeks ago. And then the pastor's wife died two weeks later. The same. We were looking at Facebook and I saw it. And we were downstairs in our home sitting by Paula. And I was just overwhelmed. And I, I just 
dialed his number, and Price answered the phone. I said, hey, Price, I, I saw where Brother Step died, and we just talked. We hung up. I, I have to do something. And sometimes it's not appropriate. Sometimes you have to, the timing is important. You have to know the person, but you've got to do something. Sometimes you, all you can do is pray. The comfort of love. The third one is there in verse 1. If any fellowship of the Spirit. Fellowship of the Spirit. I'm going to talk to you about fellowship today. Fellowship is one of those words that we throw around, but it's one of the sweetest gifts that God has ever given to people. If I keep doing this, I told my class this morning, my pants are about to fall down. I'm going to have to get some suspenders or something. So, pants on the ground, pants on the ground. So, we'll see what happens here. That'd be a good service, wouldn't it? I shouldn't have said that. One of the best gifts God has given to us is just fellowship. Now, we think fellowship uh, is eating chicken at a church social, and, and it can be that. But fellowship is with your, with your wife, with your kids, with your friends. The word fellowship at its root has to do with sharing and communicating. It really has to do with what's in common. You have something in common, so you share and you talk and you, and you connect over what you have in common. Now, I want to give you an operational definition over fellowship, and I want to talk about it this morning, preach about it, and teach about it. Here's the here's definition I want to give you. Fellowship is a relationship centered on Christ and His Word, characterized by truth, authenticity, transparency, and trust. Now, that's not in the Bible, but it is in the Bible. That's a summary of what fellowship is. And, and by the way, this is with your family. This is not just your church family. It's just you, with friends. You can meet someone in, in 10 minutes and have this, not in depth, but you can have a relationship with a person and be close to people. But boy, those people you have over time, special. Fellowship is a relationship centered on Jesus Christ and His Word, and it's characterized by truth, authenticity, Transparency and trust. When you don't have this relationship with someone, it's easy to break unity. It's easy to talk about them because our flesh, my flesh has burning lips. My flesh wants to start fires. My flesh wants to complain. My flesh wants to criticize. It's in my heart and it's in your heart too. And we need, I read in Psalm 141, verse 3 this week, where he says, Set a guard, O God, before my lips. It's a prayer the psalmist made. The guard is the Holy Spirit of God. But when you have, when you have these relationships, it's another guard. God, I can't talk about them. I love them. I, and and you, you need this type of, of fellowship in your church. The, the, the fundamental relationship in life, now listen carefully, is friendship. Um, to me, and, and I believe this is biblical, and that's all I want you to hear me out. To me, it's just as important that I like my wife as I love her. Now, there will be times that we don't like each other. You know, the Bible says in Matthew 5, you love your enemies. 
I know what it says in Corinthians 13, what love, how love behaves. Love is an act of the will. Love gets you through the hard times. But I'm, I'm friends with my wife. As my kids have gotten older, your, your relationship changes. Are you friends with your spouse? Do you have friends in the church? You say, well, no, I, I've been looking for them or nobody will be a friend. My favorite little uh, couplet is, I went out to find a friend and there, no, there were no friends there. But I went out to be a friend and friends were everywhere. I love that. I went out to find a friend and there were no friends there. But I went out to be a friend and friends were everywhere. Well, that's true. You go out to be a friend. Philippians 2, 4. Look, not every man on his own things. I need some friends. I need some friends. You go out to be a friend. Look, not on your own things, but on things of others. You'll have more friends you can shake a stick at. But do you have friends in the church? Quit thinking about who, who is my friend. That's a selfish thought. Who can I be a friend to? Who can I serve? Some people only let you get so close. They're afraid of authenticity. They're afraid of transparency. And as a result, there's no deep fellowship. Your conversations are surface, even in families. You, you talk about ball games. You talk about work. You talk about restaurants. Not wrong, but you don't ever talk about burdens. You don't ever talk about suffering. You can't get beneath the surface. But I'm going to tell you, when, when you, when you fellowship with truth, authenticity, and transparency, and trust, that type of unity does not allow petty differences to divide because they... Do something different than you do because you love them and they love you. It's fellowship. Now look in your Bible there in Philippians 2.1. It says, if any fellowship of the Spirit, of the Spirit. This fellowship initiates with God, not, not with people. It's of the Holy Spirit. When you interact with, with the Word of God and the Spirit of God... You're confronted with God's truth. Now listen, you're hearing the Word of God this morning. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is speaking in you and to you and saying, you need to change this. You need to align your life with this. And when you say, God, I want to do that, help me to change that, that's called repentance. And when you do that, you become more truthful. You become more authentic. And then you become more transparent. And then you can fellowship more. And so the overflow, you get to know God better because you get all of this clutter out of your life. And the overflow of, of my fellowship with God is my fellowship with people increases. Because I, I've been honest with God. I can, I can dare to be honest with you. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this. He said, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. Listen to this. Satan always hates Christian fellowship. Satan's policy is to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, Satan delights in. Satan attaches far more importance to godly fellowship than we do. That's a powerful statement. 
Satan attaches far more importance to godly fellowship than we do, or friends. Since union is strength, Satan does his best to promote separation, to keep us divided, to keep us separate. And we need each other. Another quote by Spurgeon, I like this one. Some Christians try to go to heaven alone in solitude, but believers are not compared to lions, bears, or other animals that wander alone. But those who belong to Christ are sheep in this respect, that they love to get together. Sheep go in flocks, and so do God's people. So the Bible here calls this fellowship, it is fellowship in the Spirit. And we fellowship with God through the blood of Christ and as His Holy Spirit dwells in us. So the, the moment, listen, the moment that you were born again, the moment you said yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit came in to dwell in you. Now your salvation may have been dramatic. The older you are, it tends to be, it doesn't have to be. It may have been emotional. There are certain religious movements out there that say it has to be, and that, that's a lie. Some people don't have personalities like that. But I'm going to tell you another lie. Some people say that when you receive the Holy Spirit, that it's an emotional thing. And that's a lie. A person receives the Holy Spirit the very moment they trust Christ as their Savior. And most people do not even know that He came in to dwell in them. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 says, Ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. You see that? It doesn't say that you're saved and then you receive the Holy Spirit. The Bible says if you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not a Christian. When you, when you were born again, when you were saved that moment, you received the Holy Spirit of God. Whether you felt Him or not, He came in to live. Now, the truth is, is, is you did have some evidence because he said, I don't do that, don't think that, don't say that. He began to convict you. He began to change you. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13, the Bible says, In whom, personal pronoun there is the Lord Jesus, in Christ, you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you heard the truth of the gospel, in whom, in Christ, also after that ye believed, ye were sealed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Jesus promised He would come and you were sealed. The word sealed there has the idea of a special stamp that was used in those days. It was to authenticate communication. It was for security. They would take some wax. Paul and I saw a movie about this recently where they took the wax and they melted it. And they put the seal in there. And the seal had a family emblem. Kings used to have it on the rings, and it would go in there, and you knew who it was from. And it was a proof of ownership. And the Holy Spirit is your seal, and He will be there. The Bible says you're sealed until the day of redemption. I love music, and I get ready in the morning and listen to sermons, or listen to, not sermons, listen to those other times, but I listen to music. One of my favorite songs is an old song called, There is a River. And the river is the Holy Spirit of God. And it's encouraging to me. It's taken from this text. I want to read it to you. John chapter 7, verses 37 and following. 
And that last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried saying, Listen, if any man thirst, it's talking about a spiritual thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly. Now that's not your physical belly. It's a metaphor. It means out of his innermost being, where, where you ache, where you want, to, you want to know God, you want more. And out of his belly shall flow rivers, watch this, rivers of living water, rivers of life. But this Jesus spake of the Spirit. He spake this of the Spirit, which would come later. But he said, you're going to have rivers of living water. You have access. When you got saved, the Holy Spirit came into living you. You have this artesian bubbling well that provides a fresh stream of encouragement, of strength, and He lives in you. The very moment you were baptized. But not only does He help you, when you were baptized, now watch this, there is a, now stay with me, I'm going to say it this way and I want you to get it, there was a corporate baptism. You were baptized not just with the Holy Spirit, you were baptized into the body of Christ. And one of the benefits of being baptized in the body of Christ is not just being identified with Christ, but being able to have access to the Holy Spirit. Let me show you the verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Notice that, all baptized, all of us, into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, so that's racial. Whether we be bond or free, that's financial. And have all, that's all of us, no divisions, been made to drink, to drink into one spirit. All, all of us corporately into one spirit, one body. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. The word drink there means to furnish with the supply and resource of refreshment. Now here's my question. Have you been drinking of the Holy Spirit? Dr. Robertson used to tell the story when he preached at a camp. I think it was in Indiana. And he said he preached on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And he said, after I finished my sermon and I got my Bible, put my notes in my Bible and dismissed the service. He said, I was walking back to my cabin up to the, uh, on the campgrounds for the evening. It was a night service. He said, a, a young man approached me. And he said, Dr. Robertson, I, I want to ask you a question about the sermon tonight. He said, yes, son. He said, well, you preached about being filled with the Holy Spirit. He said, yes, I did. And he said, the young man said, Dr. Robertson, are you filled with the Holy Spirit right now? And you had to know Dr. Lee. Didn't know that, but he said, it was a strange question, a strange question. But he said he had the right to ask it. And then Dr. Robertson asked the audience, he said, are you filled with the Holy Spirit right now? You know, we talk about these issues and access to the Holy Spirit. But have you been drinking, partaking of the Holy Spirit of God? Because here's what he says, if any fellowship of the Spirit, have you been fellowshipping with God through His Holy Spirit? If you're not fellowshipping with Him, it's going to inhibit your fellowship with people. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, There is one body, the body of Christ. There is one Spirit, the Holy Spirit. 
and you're called in one hope, one hope, the hope of the gospel, the hope of our calling. We have one Father, we have one Savior, we're indwelt by one Spirit, joined together in one body and one family. And we're so splintered. And we splinter ourselves. We dig and we dig and we dig and we burn and we burn and we burn and we talk and we talk and we talk. And we don't fellowship. We don't console. We don't comfort. We don't love. In our homes, our marriages, brothers and sisters, not just in the church, but blood brothers and sisters, don't talk. Hoss came over. Night before last Friday night, he had a 2.30 flight in the morning out of Birmingham late that night, early Saturday morning, going to Costa Rica. He had a missions trip, and he had bought me a book he wanted to drop off. And uh, so he couldn't stay long because he had to to get down to Birmingham. So he just kind of... Walked in real quick and gave me the book and talked to me and Paula for just a little bit. And we've had so much going on, just so many trials. And it's been kind of a tough week for our family and memories and things. And so I walked out on the porch. I just, I'd sent him a note there that said, you want to get breakfast? I think it was Friday morning. He wasn't able to. Just wanted to connect with him. I love my brother. And uh, got in his truck. Before he got in his truck, he turned. He said, "I love you, brother." Man, it's important. Some of you have have frayed relationships, and you, you can you can work these things out, but you've given up. You've just given up. I'll never be close to my parents. I'll, well, you can do your part. I'll never be close to my spouse. I'll never be close to my brother, my sister, or this church member. You can do your part. When Paul closed out the second book he wrote to the Corinthians, it's actually the third letter he wrote, but the only one that was the second one that was inspired. I love the benediction, it's one of my favorites in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. He mentions the Trinity here. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he highlights about Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God, that is the Father. Notice what quality he highlights about the Holy Spirit. And the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. The grace of God, the grace of Christ, the love of God. But it's not a, it is, the quality he highlights here is not love or grace or even holiness. It's, it's communion, it's fellowship. The word communion there means to share with, to fellowship. It means to communicate with. And I wrote here, this is the secret of the Christian life. Just to communicate with the Holy Spirit and to fellowship with people. It's God and people. Communion. This is it. 
to commune with people and commune with God. Loving God, loving people. Fellowshipping with God, fellowshipping with people. And so the Bible, to sum it up, the Bible clearly teaches that every Christian has the Holy Spirit of God. And as you fellowship with Him, the one that indwells you, God Himself, with mind, emotion, will, not not an influence, not a thing, not a power, but God. God indwells you. He wants to fill you. He wants to control you. And as you communicate with Him and you begin to listen to Him and you begin to respond to Him, you begin to change. And you become sensitive. And as you become sensitive, your fellowship with Him increases. And as your fellowship with Him increases, your fellowship with people increases. And the Holy Spirit of God will begin to speak to you. You need to help them. You, you ought not say that right now. Why don't you look over there a little bit, a little bit discouraged? Because you're walking with someone that is a comforter. And he wants to do his work through you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Oswald Chambers said, Human fellowship can go to great lengths, but not all the way. Fellowship with God can go to all lengths. All lengths. You know, we have an advantage over unbelievers in this matter of friendship because of the spiritual connection that we have in Christ. We have tremendous, a tremendous advantage. And he, God, God wants to do this work in us. He wants to move in us. He wants to help us and to transform our lives. Daniel told you I was going to tell you this story. I'm going to give it to you at this point. In 1773, there was a pastor in Waynesgate, England, named John Fawcett, F-A-W-C-E-T-T. He was a very gifted man. He was a gifted preacher, a very powerful preacher, and he was a gifted writer. He was a young fella, and Waynesgate is a small city. It still is. It's not large. But because of his gifts, it began to get the attention of some larger churches in London, which was the large, one of the largest cities in Europe at the time and the largest city in England. And a large church called John Fawcett to come and be their pastor. And so he accepted that call to leave the congregation there in that little church where he had served, where he had learned to preach in Waynesgate. I remember I heard this story and I looked it up and the building is still there. You can actually go into the building because of the, the, this story. It's a powerful story. And as moving day came and the wagons came to their house and they began to load up the wagons, his wife Mary stood there and they saw all the people helping them pack up their belongings and many of them weeping. Mary looked at her husband John and said, John, I cannot bear 
to leave these people. And John said, uh, neither can I marry. And he told the people, he said, I want you to stop packing the wagons. I want you to, if you don't mind, if you would go ahead and, and unpack the rest of our things and put them back in the house. We cannot leave. And John Fawcett spent his life in a small church in Waynesgate, England, a small town, 54 years. And he wrote that song that we sang this morning, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. Over 200 years ago, over 250 years ago, that we still sing in churches today, and I wanted us to sing it today. And he died there. The church still stands as a testament to God's faithfulness to this man. Had a conversation with John, my son. He was a deacon at his church. And uh, their pastor left and went to a larger church. Another pastor came. He left and went to a larger church. Third pastor came and he left. He was very discouraged. And I said, John, have you ever noticed? I said, this is not universally true. And I said, I'm not saying it's wrong, but I said, have you ever known a, a pastor to leave a large church and go to a small church? He said, Daddy, I've never thought about that. I said, well, I have. So I've thought about it. I said, I, th- I think sometimes in, in Christian circles we have worldly mindsets that it's like a business. Like I get promoted. And I'm not saying it's wrong to... For God to give you gifts and God to call you other places. But I told that story about John Fawcett because your, your fellowship with God is going to determine the decisions that you make and determine the quality and the caliber of the fellowship and the depth of your relationships that you have in your home, in your church, at work. And you are going to sow seeds of unity and peace in every environment of authenticity, of genuineness, wherever you go. But you've you've got to begin to walk with Him. You've got to commune with the Holy Spirit. And then you have to learn to fellowship. We're going to finish this up. Later, I think I'm going to preach on some Christmas messages the next two weeks, but we're going to finish this up later. But I I want to encourage you to begin to fellowship with God, and I want you to learn to fellowship with people. We're going to talk about this a little more. But first, we have to stop doing some things that's not helping us to fellowship and burning some things down. I want you to pray with me, if you would, just where you sit there, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. While you're seated there, I wonder if, if God's just speaking to you about something that is hindering your fellowship with your husband, your wife. 
would, would you just confess that to God? Just tell him. Is there something that's hindering your fellowship with your children? Maybe you have a brother or sister or your parents. Angry words have been exchanged and you think they'll, the walls will never come down. Would you just confess your part to God? Ask God to help you to sow some seeds. And ask God to help you to carry a heart of fellowship wherever you go. Ask Him to help you to to commune with Him and to know Him. Our Father, as we leave today, I I can't think of a really a better message to preach at Christmas. Most of us, not all of us, will see family members in the next few weeks. I pray that you would help us not be shallow people. Lord, just... uh, not willing to help people, being quiet when we ought to be quiet, showing up when we need to show up, carrying burdens, praying, listening to you. I pray you would do a deep work. May you make this. I remember when we were thinking about changing the name of our church that we toyed around with the name of this fellowship Baptist church not just because it was a name but because of what it meant fellowship and Lord may may that attribute be seen in the lives of our people in my heart and may this be a transformative place when people walk in here may, may they sense authenticity. May this be a place where friends can be made. When strangers walk in, may we metaphorically embrace them and love them and care for them, go the second mile with them. May we be a place of mercy and help and grace and comfort. Help our church. Help us to be a church of the Lord Jesus Christ that represents your heart. Help us to do that well. Bless our people this Christmas season as we do. Go about in different venues and meet people. Oh God, we need you. Bless us as we leave here today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for being here today. I I hope this was a help to you.